You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Well, welcome again to Gospel Community Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Brad Leibolt, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and it's, it's an honor to be bringing uh, the word this morning. Uh, we are in a series right now uh, in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to 2 Timothy. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have a stack of them on the Connect table there. You can take that. If you don't have one at home that's yours, take it home. Uh, we'll be in 2 Timothy. Full disclosure, we are covering the entire chapter today. It's the longest chapter in 2 Timothy, and I somehow got stuck with it. And I'm gonna try to, we're going to try to do it all. We're not going to be able to do everything. We're going to try to do the right things. So we're going into 2 Timothy chapter 2. We skipped chapter 1. That was supposed to be last week. Uh, Rick got sick Saturday and Sunday, so he couldn't preach. So Jake got asked to preach at 6 in the morning on Sunday. So we're skipping chapter 1. I'm preaching on chapter 2. Next week, Lord willing, Rick will preach on chapter 1. If you're new to GCC, you're thinking, that's kind of weird. And it is. But... If you've been coming to GCC for a while, you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I get it. Um, we try to take the gospel really seriously, but we don't try to take ourselves too seriously. And so uh, when stuff comes up, we roll with it, and we're just going to its a choose your own adventure through 2 Timothy, and we're going to do it a little bit out of order. Um, so 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, I'm going to read just the first two verses, and then I'll open us up in prayer. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us and poured out on us through your son, Jesus, coming and living in our place and dying for our sins and rising from the grave. Thank you for the grace that you continue to pour out to strengthen us to live according to your will, according to your word. I pray, God, that this morning would be uh, encouraging to us, that it would be challenging to us, that it would convict us. God, I pray that the gospel would be very clear and compelling today and that uh, whether it's uh, maybe our first time hearing the gospel for some in the room or the hundredth time, we are inspired and, and, and compelled to to greater belief and greater trust and greater hope in you. So I pray that our hearts and lives are changed today by the power of your word and your spirit. I pray that you'd use me and my words to that end so that you would be glorified and Jesus, you would be the hero. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, have you ever had something, an object, maybe an idea, an opinion, maybe it's a person that's so valuable to you, that you care about so much that you would endure any kind of suffering, any kind of hardship, just to protect it. I'm sure we all have something like that. Uh, the cop-out answer is your kids, but uh, which, yeah, you would endure a lot to protect them. Maybe it's an idea. So I absolutely despise, and I mean it, I mean this like with full sincerity, paying for parking. I think that of like all the woes of modern society, paying for parking is like at the top of my list. I don't know why we have to do it. And in college, I went to the University of Oregon, and you have to pay to park wherever you park on college because after they already take your thousands of dollars in tuition money, they need those $2 for the hour that you're gonna spend there in class. Uh, and so I hate paying for parking. So there's two hour parking, which is free, south of campus on like University Street and then south of 18th. So I would drive in circles. 
around the blocks uh, of, to f try to find a two-hour parking spot. And I would be late for class. I would have to walk extra miles just because I did not want to pay for parking. I cared so much about not paying for parking. I had the $2, it was fine. It was more like sticking it to the man, you know, like this pride thing. Like, I'm not gonna pay for parking. And then I would endure, right, all kinds of suffering because I cared so much about not paying for parking. So maybe, that's a silly example, maybe there's something, an object, an idea, something that you value so much that you would endure any kind of suffering, any kind of hardship, any kind of discomfort or difficulty to protect it. That's the idea that Paul is getting at in this second chapter of 2 Timothy. Uh, we've titled this series, The Legacy, and we've done that because this is Paul's last letter. It's the last thing he's written. He's in prison. He he's, he's sees his execution approaching. And so it's kind of like his, his deathbed wishes to Timothy, this man that he has discipled and trained up and who he sees as a child. So what is, what is Paul saying in his last words to Timothy uh, that Timothy needs to value and care about? What is Paul going to pass on? What is Paul's legacy to Timothy that he's passing on? And this entire book, this entire last letter is about the gospel. It's about the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that provides for people's salvation, forgiveness from sins, and eternal life. And Paul is saying, above, outside of anything else that he could have told Timothy, he's saying, continue in gospel. Continue in gospel ministry. Continue in gospel work. So Paul's legacy that he wants to leave behind has nothing to do with his power, his prestige, his knowledge, anything about him, and everything to do with Jesus. The legacy that Paul is leaving behind to Timothy is the legacy of the gospel. And he's charging Timothy to do the same to pass that same legacy on to others. We just read that verse, uh, the, the opening of this chapter, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. So what Paul has in mind is this, this uh, succession and progression of the gospel going forth from him to Timothy, to other faithful men, and then to others. And here we sit today, 2000 years later, hearing that same gospel message as it's been preserved and passed on over time. I'm going to read a quote from John Stott, uh, who wrote a commentary on 2 Timothy. And it's kind of it's in his introduction about the letter. I think it's helpful to think through this as we think through the letter as a whole. It says, The church of our day urgently needs to heed the message of the second letter of Paul to Timothy. For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it and are prepared to suffer for it, and who will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the generation which in due course will rise up to follow them. So that's the, I, the big picture idea of 2 Timothy, the legacy, the legacy of the gospel that we are to, all to pass on to the next generation. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy he must do continue in gospel ministry. I'm going to use that phrase, gospel ministry, throughout this sermon. What I mean by it is evangelism and discipleship. It's us taking the gospel and bringing it to other people. Maybe it's for the first time trying to convince a non-believer to believe in the gospel. That's evangelism. Maybe it's for just continual discipleship, reminding people of the gospel. It's gospel ministry that we are all to be engaged in as followers of Christ. This is a letter to Timothy, but it's God's word to all of us, where we have been entrusted with the good deposit of the gospel, and we are to pass it along to others. 
This happens in all kinds of ways. I think we oftentimes think about this kind of thing being the job of pastors and missionaries. But what scripture actually says is that pastors and church leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the job of church leaders is not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So gospel ministry, evangelism and discipleship is a responsibility of all Christians, all believers. And this happens in lots of different ways. For those of you who are parents, you do this as you parent, as you raise your kids in the faith and teach them the gospel and teach them scripture and pray with them. That's one way that this takes place. It takes place in the church context when you go to a GC group and you find people there who are pouring into you and encouraging you in the gospel. One really easy way that we can do this as a church is in the kids' ministry. That when we release the kids every week, there's this stampede of kids rushing back to go back there every week. We've said this before. There's like 25 non-believers that show up to church, and we get to teach them whatever we want. And so we do our best to start to teach young kids the gospel in kids' ministry. And so one way you can participate in evangelism and discipleship as a part of the church family is by serving in kids' ministry. One commentator says this, it is not only a privilege to receive the Christian faith, it is a duty to transmit it. All Christians must look on themselves as the link between two generations. Every generation comes and receives the gospel, and they have a duty then to transmit it to the next. We have the next generation of Christians and church leaders in, uh, in our midst, among us, and they're running around, and they're a lot of fun right now. But one day, one day, they will be sitting in chairs like this, hearing the gospel and passing it on to others. And we have a duty to, to, to be the link between those generations. We're approaching the most wonderful time of the year, which is not Christmas, but fall. The mornings are starting to get cool and crisp. Hunting season is quickly approaching. And so is football season. I have my fantasy football draft tonight. Super excited about it. It's that time of year. Football is coming. And maybe you're not a football fan, but you get the idea of football, hopefully. The most important thing on a football field is the football, right? This oval-shaped pigskin thing. Everyone is trying to get that thing across a line. And the whole goal is to either move it forward or to prevent it from being moved forward. And so the football passes between the hands of the center to the quarterback, to the running back or a wide receiver. And their goal is to protect that football and move it, progress it in the right direction. In a similar kind of way, we've been entrusted with something valuable and precious that we are to protect and guard and advance towards some sort of goal. In football, though, there's defense. There's things that there's forces that are trying to prevent that ball from moving forward. And there's the same thing in the Christian life and the Christian faith. As we are doing gospel ministry, we run into opposition. And this whole chapter is about how, how, much, how much suffering are we willing to endure when we face opposition to protect and guard and move forward this valuable thing that we've been entrusted with, the gospel. So this chapter is broken up into two sections that we're going to look at. There's internal opposition and external opposition. Internal opposition is our own sinful and selfish desires that we push up against when we try to engage in gospel ministry. And external opposition is false gospels and false teachers, which Paul will talk about in the second half of the chapter. So we'll look at how we deal with each, and we'll see that when we do deal with these things, we experience suffering. Paul says in verse 3, to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We're going to suffer when we engage in gospel ministry. We're going to suffer when we deal with opposition to the gospel. And so we need to be prepared to suffer as we inevitably face opposition. 
Real quick note, to define suffering, there, there's different ways we can think about suffering. What we don't mean now when we're talking about suffering is the kind of suffering when uh, maybe the unexpected loss of a loved one or an unexpected and disappointing um, diagnosis, medical diagnosis. The, the, the kind of hardships and trials of life that just come to all of us, that's not the kind of suffering I think Paul is talking about here. I think the Bible has plenty to say about that kind of suffering and how we endure that as Christians. But I think here he's talking about the varying degrees of discomfort that we face when we're committed to the gospel. And that discomfort can look a lot of ways. We can lose maybe status and reputation, can lose relationships, and then there's many throughout church history who have lost their lives because of the commit, uh, their commitment to gospel ministry. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about. So how do we faithfully endure opposition to gospel ministry? Let's look first at verse 1. I read it earlier. I think this is the most, mm, one of the most important verses in this whole section, and if we don't understand this verse first, we will get all kinds of bad stuff when we go throughout the rest of the chapter. So you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What Paul doesn't say is, Timothy, be strengthened by your gifts and abilities. Be strengthened by confident, reassuring, reassuring self-talk. Be strengthened by your, your pristine moral track record. Be strengthened by uh, your really disciplined devotional life. Be strengthened by an optimal combination of healthy fats, carbs, and proteins. No, he says, be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Rick preached about grace a couple weeks ago. We understand grace as pardon. It's God looking at us with undeserved fa favor, unconditional love, and saying you're forgiven. It's, a, it's an undeserved gift that God has given us to pardon us of our sin against him because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our justification is an act, is a gift of God's grace towards us. He has pardoned us through his grace, by his grace in Christ Jesus. Grace is pardon, but it's also power. We don't get into the kingdom of heaven by grace, and then it's up to us to stay in the kingdom of heaven by our works. We get in by grace, and then the very power that we need, the very strength that we need to continue living out is by grace as well. So grace is pardon. It's also power. Grace is the ongoing life-giving power that is necessary for us to grow in holiness as children of God. And this is really good news for us because what Paul is calling us to, what scripture calls us to as Christians is difficult and we're going to need strength. And so God promises that the strength we're going to need to do the things he's asking us to do, he's going to provide it. And he's going to provide it through grace, which is a free gift which means that we don't have to do something to earn or deserve the continual ongoing uh, gift of grace that God is going to give us for strength. He's going to pour that out freely. He's proven that when he gave up his son, Jesus, in grace, and so he will continue to do the same as we walk through this life. The strength that we get through grace, by grace, looks a couple different ways. One, we know from Scripture that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that when we have joy in Christ, when we have joy in the Lord, that actually strengthens us. So when we reflect on the grace that God has given us in the gospel, that gives us joy. That joy then is our strength to endure suffering. The second way we are strengthened by grace is through assurance. When we reflect on God's grace in the gospel, we can be confident that he has already provided everything we need for salvation. He will be faithful to continue to provide what we need for sanctification, for continually walking in grace. 
And so we have joy and assurance when we reflect on God's grace in Jesus Christ, and this gives us strength to do what he's about to lay out for us. If we miss this, if we go throughout the rest of this chapter and talk about being good soldiers and good athletes and farmers and having good doctrine and all the stuff we're going to talk about, and we fail to see that the strength we're going to need to do all of that comes from grace, then we're going to work ourselves uh, into the ground trying to provide, trying to bring these things about in our life on our own power. And so it's all through grace. Okay, let's look first at the internal opposition we're going to face. Like I said, the internal opposition, opposition we're going to face to engage in meaningful gospel ministry is our own sinful and selfish desires that are fueled by our idolatry. When we worship things other than God, we start to serve these things, which then draws our attention, our devotion, our discipline, our work, our effort, our energy away from Jesus, away from the gospel. And so because of idolatry in our hearts, because of a worship of other things, we lack devotion, we lack discipline, we lack hard work. And these are the things that Paul tells Timothy he needs, tells us we need in order to do effective gospel ministry. And he uses three metaphors, three illustrations. The first is a soldier in verse three. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A good soldier is single-minded. A good soldier is focused on the mission. A good soldier isn't going to get distracted by civilian pursuits, isn't going to get distracted by things that don't pertain to the mission. He's going to be focused, devoted. And to do effective gospel ministry, to live out what Paul is asking us to do, to protect and advance the gospel, we are going to have to be devoted as well. Have the devotion of a soldier. Now, this is going to produce discomfort, suffering in our life, because it means we're going to have to remove things that distract us and draw our devotion away from Jesus. So what kinds of things in your life are pulling your devotion away from Christ? Maybe it's career, financial stability, travel, hobbies, or relationship. None of these things are bad, but they are things that can take us out of the fight for the gospel if our devotion is directed towards them and not Jesus. The second metaphor he uses is that of an athlete. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Paul is familiar with soldiers. He's in prison and guarded by soldiers. He's familiar with athletes. They have the Olympic Games in Rome. And then he's going to talk about farmers, which he's familiar with as well. And the Olympic Games, the athletes had to compete by the rules. We're familiar with this. There's rules to sports. There's rules to competition. And you don't win. You don't get crowned unless you follow the rules. Sometimes you don't follow the rules, you win, and then later they have to take your trophy away. But for the most part, you don't win if you don't follow the rules. There was a rule for these early Olympics where athletes had to prove, like under oath, that they had been training for, I think it was six months prior to the games. And this was a way to weed out the professionals from the amateurs. They wanted the competition to be good. They wanted the entertainment to be good. And so if you hadn't been doing rigorous discipline training according to the rules of the games, then you wouldn't get let into the games. You're not going to win unless you've been training according to the rules, unless you've been training with discipline. It is the disciplined athlete that will get the crown. And in the same way, what I think Paul is using this metaphor for us is the need for discipline. When we're attempting to engage in gospel ministry, protect and advance the gospel, we're going to need discipline. We're going to need devotion, and we're going to need discipline. But discipline is uncomfortable. It's much easier to be undisciplined or to have discipline in areas of our life that might be unhealthy for us. 
but we need discipline. Oftentimes, the one of the reasons we're maybe not engaging in meaningful gospel ministry is because of a lack of discipline. And so if the if if the if gospel ministry is knowing the gospel and the word of God and transmitting that to other people, then that requires a certain knowledge of what the gospel and the word of God is, which comes through discipline, reading and studying and praying and, and, and cultivating a relationship with Christ through discipline. There also has to be a recipient of the gospel that we are transmitting to other people. But if you lack a discipline in church attendance or small group attendance, how are you going to know people or be in people's lives consistently enough to pass that thing on? So discipline is required to engage in meaningful gospel ministry. The third metaphor he uses is a farmer. Verse six, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I've never met, you've probably never met a successful lazy farmer. You can't be a successful farmer and be lazy. Hard work is required. And sometimes the simple fact is we don't engage in gospel ministry because we're just lazy. It requires too much effort to fill in the blank. And we don't like effort. We'd prefer the path of least resistance. We'd prefer the easy route. And so laziness on its own is what prevents us from telling people, sharing the gospel, discipling people, engaging in church life, doing the things that Jesus is calling us to do. What Paul is saying here, you can't take the path of least resistance. There's no harvest available for the lazy farmer. It's the hardworking one that's going to see a crop. And so, yeah, don't let anyone ever convince you that doing the kinds of things that Scripture calls us to do is easy. It's not. It's hard. It's, taking, it's going to take hard work, and hard work is uncomfortable. So engaging in gospel ministry, evangelism, and discipleship is difficult. It pushes against our selfish desires and idols and to serve Jesus, like Paul is calling us to do here, we're going to have to cultivate devotion, discipline, and hard work. And remember, we have the strength to do this because of the grace that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So even at the end of the day, if you are the most devoted and disciplined and hardworking Christian ever, you still can't take credit for it. Because the devotion, discipline, and hard work that you have is a gift of God's grace. Freely given, not earned or deserved. Let's move now to the external opposition. We're going to skip verses 8 through 13. If you're following along, we're going to come back to those at the end. The external opposition to the advance of the gospel is false teachers and false gospels. And Paul talks a lot about false gospels and false teachers in most of his letters. There's all kinds of false gospels that threaten to pull people away from the true gospel, that threaten to lead us and others astray, and ultimately threaten the legacy of the one true gospel. So how do we do with this kind of external opposition? Uh, look at verse 15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So his first encouragement to Timothy to engage with false teachers is to rightly handle the word of truth. These false teachers are, he says, they're, they're, they're engaging in irreverent babble. They're just talking. And the ideas that they're coming up with are their own ideas that they just keep talking and babbling about. And it's leading people astray. And he says, Timothy, your ideas don't come from your mind. They come from the word of truth. So your, your mission as, your responsibility as a church leader is to rightly handle the word of truth. To rightly divide scripture. The difference between a false teacher, well, one of the differences between a false teacher and a true teacher is that one is going to have their own ideas. And oftentimes scripture gets kind of glued to it. And the other is going to derive ideas from scripture. 
One is submitting to the authority of the word that God has already given to us, and the other is they're the authority. Their word is the authority. And so the call to Timothy and the call to us as Christians is not to teach and believe our own ideas that are influenced by our emotions, the culture and world around us, but rather to rightly handle God's ideas through the word of truth. This Bible, the the Genesis through Revelation, God's written word to us is our authority as believers. It's how we know what is right and wrong and good and evil and true and untrue. And so our theology, how we define and describe the gospel and what salvation is and how we receive it has to come from these pages. And any gospel, any message, any teaching, any doctrine that is first inspired by emotion or culture or something outside of scripture, we need to be weary of. And so when we engage with false gospels around us, we need to be people that are committed to the word and rightly dividing and handling the word of truth, which means that we need to be people who read and study it. You can't rightly handle something if you never actually handle it. We have to be people who are in the word, living by the word, studying the word in the context of community so that when false gospels are presented, when false ideas are presented, when bad theology is presented, we know it's bad. We know it's false because we can compare it to what is good and true. The babbling of the false teachers, Paul calls irreverent. They have no reverence for God's word. They have no reverence for God. There's no worship of who God is and what he has said to us. And so in contrast, we have a reverence for God's word, a reverence and a respect and an awe and a worship of him and how he's communicated to us through scriptures. So how do we deal with external opposition? The first thing is right doctrine. The second thing is right conduct. Uh, Verse 21. Hopefully you're following along. I said we're covering a lot. We're just like verse. Yeah. So, oh, I was going to say this. It's helpful. I think we send this in the email when we read through books that we tell you ahead of time what we're going to preach through. Uh, I think it's helpful if you read ahead, read scripture ahead. I know some of you do that. We've talked about that before. Uh, So then when we're doing stuff like this and jumping around, you kind of already have an idea of what's going on. Okay, so I know. Back to verse 21. He's using an illustration of a house and different kinds of vessels in the house. Some are for honorable uses and some are for dishonorable. And the house is a metaphor for the church. And inside the church, there are false teachers that are dishonorable vessels, and there are true teachers that are honorable vessels. And this is what he says to Timothy. Therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In our New Testament, there's two telltale signs of a false teacher. One is bad doctrine, what they're actually teaching. The other is bad living, how their lives are being lived. You can tell a a tree by its fruit, right? A good tree is going to produce good fruit. A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. And so bad theology, bad teaching of false gospel is going to produce bad fruit in the lives of the people that are promoting it. And so the charge to Timothy and to us is in contrast to that, to have good conduct. If we believe the true gospel, then that's going to produce true holiness in our lives. And so he says, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, and then you'll be a vessel for honorable use. So one way we actually combat and deal with the external opposition of false teachers is by letting our actions speak louder than our words. If you're preaching the gospel, but then your life does not line up with and match with what you're saying, what you're saying is going to hold a lot less weight with the people that you're saying it to. If your life doesn't actually back up the words you're saying, then what you're saying means less. And so our, our lives 
we live holy lives that reflect and, and, are ex and uh, show proof that the gospel actually is real and true. Now, who, who's doing this cleansing? He says, Timothy, cleanse yourself. And we talk all the time about how God cleanses us. God cleanses us in our justification. So the moment that we are saved and put our faith in Jesus, we are clean, washed, pure, holy because of the blood of Jesus. That is, that is a fact. It's done. Amen. We are cleansed and holy because of God's act in justifying us through Jesus. Now we walk out our sanctification where, we be, we, where we're being made more holy and the cleansing is taking place as we say no to sin and yes to obedience to Christ. God is still doing that. We're strengthened by his grace, but we have a role to play through confession and repentance and obedience to actually bring about holiness in our life through the help of the Spirit. So we flee sinful desires and we pursue Christ and we pursue righteousness, not to earn salvation, not to earn God's approval, but because we already have salvation and we already have God's approval, we live out the holiness we've been given. If we believe that the gospel is the power of God to save and change lives, then more evidence that our lives are actually being changed is going to make the gospel more trust trustworthy to its opponents. So right doctrine right conduct. And then lastly, verse 23 through 26, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So have right doctrine, have right conduct, and be gentle in your interactions with people who are opposed to the gospel. It says to avoid quarrels, to not be quarrelsome, to avoid fighting, to avoid arguments. Rather, be kind, be patient, and be gentle. Now, this doesn't mean we don't ever correct. This doesn't mean we don't ever fight for what is true. This doesn't mean we don't teach what is true. It means we do those things in a way that is kind, patient, and gentle. Paul's phrasing here, I think is really interesting. He says, patiently enduring evil. False teaching and false gospels are evil. When false gospels are believed, they're taking people to hell for eternity. So there's evil being done when false gospels are preached and promoted. Paul's aware of this and he says to endure it patiently, to patiently endure evil. That doesn't mean we don't care about evil. It doesn't mean we are justly angry at evil. But what it does mean is we patiently endure it knowing that God will give us strength and God will grant repentance. And at the end of the day, God gets justice. We live, I think, in a world where disagreeing kindly, patiently, and gently is rare. So I think it says a lot about Christians when we can disagree with people in gentle ways, when we can disagree with people and be patient and kind. That's almost unheard of in our world today. And so when Christians disagree, and it's okay to disagree, in a gentle and kind and patient way and teach and correct and engage in conversation about things we disagree about in a gentle and kind and patient way. I think that says a lot about our witness and about what the gospel actually does in our lives and our hearts. Then he ends and says, perhaps through our persistence, by the grace of God, people will repent because that is the goal. The goal of all of our gospel ministry is that people repent, believe, come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel and are, are saved for eternity. All right, recap. Gospel ministry is difficult. 
and opposition is inevitable. You're going to face opposition. So this begs a couple questions. One, are you facing any opposition? As you, as you live out the Christian life, as you evangelize and disciple and do the things that, that, that we're talking about here, are you facing opposition? Are you running up against any kind of discomfort in your life that's caused by your commitment to the gospel? If life is comfortable, if there's never any discomfort or opposition that you face, then you might not be as committed to the gospel as you think. There might be areas in your life where you actually need to step into some discomfort and into some uncomfortable things to be more committed to gospel ministry. So are there areas, are there things in your life that you might need to remove so that you can have a greater devotion to what matters? Maybe you need to work a little bit harder and overcome some laziness to develop some missional friendships with people in your place of work. Maybe there's a lacking of biblical literacy and doctrinal clarity. And so you need to be disciplined to know what is true and what is false. And maybe you need to let go of your pride, stop getting into senseless arguments about words, and kindly, patiently, and gently point people to Jesus, no matter how difficult that is. So whatever area of your life needs to get uncomfortable so that you can be more committed to gospel ministry, remember that the strength required to do those things comes from grace and not your own power. I said we would return to the middle section, and so we're going to close there. Verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's almost as if halfway through, when Paul is telling Timothy that this is going to be difficult and you're going to have to work hard and be devoted and disciplined, he pauses and says, but remember, remember Jesus Christ. Remember what about Jesus Christ? Well, one, that he was risen from the dead, which means that he was dead. <laughs> Remember that Jesus Christ died on your behalf. Remember that he was crucified for your sin. Remember that your unrighteousness and unholiness and uncleanliness was taken with Jesus on the cross into the grave. He rose from the grave and he left that there. Your old self has been crucified with Christ, left in the tomb, and you've risen with him to new life. You're a new creation. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, you too have been risen to new life. Remember that Jesus is God. No mere man can raise from the dead on his own. The resurrection is proof that Jesus has power, that he is divine. Remember also that Jesus Christ is the offspring of David. Interesting phrase, but from it we gather and we know that Jesus wasn't just divine and God, he was also man. He was born in a line of people, the line of David, meaning God came into our world in the form of a human. He lived the life that we are supposed to live. He perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly loved God. He perfectly loved others in ways that we never, never could. It also means that he suffered as a human. Whatever suffering you go through, Jesus has endured it as well. We know that he was tempted in every way that we are, but never sinned. And so we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us when we go through suffering. Jesus was perfectly devoted, perfectly disciplined, worked harder than anyone, had perfect doctrine, perfect conduct, and was perfectly kind and gentle and patient when he interacted with people. And that perfection, if you are in Christ, has been applied to you. So remember Jesus Christ. Remember that your sin has been crucified with him. You are a new creation, and his perfect life is yours. This is the gospel. This is the legacy that we've been entrusted with and are to entrust others with. That God became flesh, lived among us, died for us, rose from the grave, and now sits enthroned in heaven for eternity, ruling over all of creation and will one day return to make all things new. In verses 11 through 13, Paul quotes 
what is most likely a hymn, says the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, If you are with us this morning and, and you're checking Christianity out, you are exploring the claims of Christianity and you're not sold on the gospel, first of all, really, really glad you're here. And I hope, I hope you continue to come back to explore the claims of Christianity. We always want to be a church that is safe and welcoming for people who aren't Christian to come see what Christianity is all about. And so I'm really glad you're here. We're also not going to uh, shy away from, from putting a crossroads in front of you. Because as you learn about the claims of Christianity, that you, you have a choice, a choice to make. And here this choice is laid out. If we have died with him, and if we endure, we will live with him and reign with him. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you say, yes, I trust in him for my salvation, you die to yourself, you're crucified with him, but that means also you will live with him abundantly now here in this life, but also eternally in heaven forever with God, your creator, where you will reign and rule over creation with him. The other choice is to deny him. And when you deny Jesus, he also will deny you. When we deny him, when we don't have faith, he remains faithful to who he is and his promises, and he will deny us. Uh, we, we live in a world that truth is relative, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and, and we're not, I'm not going to impose or force my truth on you, which doesn't work. And as Christians, we believe that there's an objective truth, an objective reality, and that that objective truth comes from God. The objective reality is the creator, God himself. And so I think what this verse is saying is that even if you deny the existence of God, that doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. You can deny Jesus all you want. That doesn't make him not exist. So accept him or deny him, accept him or reject him. Jesus is still ruling and reigning over the heavens and the earth right now. And your decision to accept or reject, to die with him through faith or to deny him will have lasting implications into eternity. For those of us in the room who have made this decision to put our faith in Jesus, the encouragement here, the application here is to remember Jesus Christ, to remember who he is and what he has done, how he's gone before us and suffered before us more than we ever will, and how he's entrusted us with a message that we go and suffer for him to take to the ends of the earth. Paul uses his own suffering as an encouragement, I think, to Timothy as well. And so I think it's helpful to see stories throughout church history who, of people who have suffered for the gospel that might encourage and embolden us to do the same. So I'll close with this story. Uh, William Tyndale, maybe you're familiar with the name or the Tyndale Bible. William Tyndale uh, lived in the early 16th century, and he was a priest who got caught up in kind of the Reformation movement uh, with Luther and everything, started reading the scriptures and realized that justification was through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, uh, and not according to works. And so he had a passion then that everyone knows that message. The problem was is that at the time there was not a Bible translated into English. The Bible was written in Latin and only priests and bishops 
and popes and people who were high up in the Roman Catholic Church could read scripture. So if, you, if all of the common people who speak common language can't read the Bible, then the people in leadership can say the Bible says whatever they want it to say. And this is what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church. Only the elite, the leaders could read scripture. And so the authority actually landed with the leaders and not with the Bible. William Tyndale saw a problem with this and wanted to get the Bible into the hands of everyone in the language that everyone could read. He was fluent in Greek and Hebrew. He knew the scriptures really well, and so he started to translate the Bible into English. He was met with opposition from the Catholic Church and from the King of England and ended up having to go into hiding to complete his translations. So for the majority of William Tyndale's life, he was on the run and in hiding, working on translating the Bible into English. After he completed the, a New Testament translation, he started smuggling it back into England and secretly and illegally dispersing it to people who were there. His English translation was outlawed and burned. Uh, and so if you were caught with one, you would get in big trouble because it was illegal to use William Tyndale, Tyndale's English translation of the New Testament. Throughout the course of his life, he eventually translated the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, from Hebrew and Greek into English and started secretly and illegally distributing that into England. He was on the run, he was in hiding, and he had developed a small group of friends that he trusted who were in support of his ministry. But one of his friends uh, ended up betraying him and lured him out of hiding into into the hands of soldiers who arrested him, put him in prison, and he went on trial for 16 months. The last 16 months of his life, he was in a dungeon uh, on trial for heresy, which they eventually found him guilty of. So William Tyndale was found guilty of heresy for translating the Bible into English to try and get it in the hands of everyone. And he was strangled to death and then burned at the stake for his crimes. To this day, our English translations are built on the translation theory that William Tyndale used to translate the Tyndale Bible, which he was illegally distributing. You see, William Tyndale had something that he thought was so valuable and so worth protecting and so worth advancing that he would endure any kind of suffering to do that, to protect it. What he found valuable was God's word, the gospel, this legacy that Paul entrusted to Timothy, who was supposed to entrust it to faithful men who are to teach others that we now have today. Now, Lord willing, none of us will ever be strangled or burned at the stake for our devotion to Jesus, but we're going to face opposition. Question is, are we going to Endure that opposition, endure that suffering because Jesus has first suffered for us and because we believe that what we have is valuable enough to suffer for it? Or are we going to choose the comfortable, easy, and safe path and exclude ourselves from this transition of this gospel legacy? I hope we will all choose the first option. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this gospel that you've entrusted us with. Thank you that we have been saved from our sin, that we have a new identity in you. God, I pray that each of us would take this time to reflect on areas in our life that we might not be pressing into some discomfort for your sake. She would convict us and, and challenge us to, to repent of that and to grow. Praise things in Jesus' name, amen.